0: This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we're going to be talking to Irina Scott and Philip Mantle about one of the most incredible and complex UFO incidents in history. There's been a lot of new research on the Pascagoula incident, but before we go there, we're going to be talking a little bit about a very special and extraordinary man who has recently passed, Calvin Parker, who was one of the two witnesses who were taken aboard the craft at that time. Uh, Philip Mantle is a uh, is the publisher of the Flying Disc Press. And you can go to, what is it, Phil, uh, .co.uk or, or...
1: com. Just go flyingdiscpress.com. Use, use the K in disc and you'll find me.
0: Yeah, flyingdiscpress.com, wonderful, beautifully put put together books, and we'll be talking in particular today about Beyond Reasonable Doubt, the Pascagoula alien abduction. Irina Scott, who, because Dr. Scott has worked with this case very extensively for years. Uh, both of them have been on Dreamland previously. And we'll be talking to Irina about the larger context of this incident because it wasn't just Calvin Parker and and and, uh, and what happened. It was the a whole vast complicated event that took place on October the 11th, 1973 uh, when Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker were abducted so welcome to the show both of you and phil i'd like to start if you can by telling us a little bit about calvin and what he endured in order to get this story out
1: yeah um i mean i i I first connected with calvin in in 2018 whitley and um you know we, we we slowly but surely as we worked together became friends and I would speak to him on a regular basis, perhaps every week on Skype, and we'd exchange emails in between. Uh, he was a very humble man, you know. In, in many respects, just a, an ordinary Joe, just like the rest of us. Um, you know, loved to work with his hands. Uh, no great formal education, but he could he could mend anything, he could fix anything, he could build anything. Uh, but he wasn't stupid uh, in any respect, he, you know. He learned after he was calculus, which helped him in, in the building trade. Uh, and I believe he even taught some of the pupils at the local school. Um, and you know, I i I, I struggle to remember what the hell calculus was when he told me, you know, but he also had a great sense of humor, um, you know, loved country music, loved his wife and his family. He was a bit disappointed he never had any grandchildren. And um, I often joked and said, Look, you know, I've got six grandchildren. Calvin, we can loan you a couple for a few years. It might change your mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, but uh, a lovely, lovely guy. I mean, you know, I spoke to him uh, the week before he died. I got him on the telephone uh, and we still had a laugh and a giggle. Uh, and we knew, you know, that the, the news, the bad news was coming soon, but still bad news when it arrived. But just to give you an idea of, of the type of man Calvin was, Um, it's only a couple of months before he died that his mother passed away. And she'd been in a nursing home for some time. And sadly, she got to the stage where she couldn't even recognize Calvin. She didn't know who he was. But as long as he could, Whitley, he went over to the nursing home on a Friday evening, took his guitar with him, and he used to sing to all all the patients in there. And that's the kind of man he was. Yeah, Uh, that's
0: beautiful and wonderful.
1: yeah, I mean, he told a colleague of ours that he was doing this, and that's how I got to know. And Calvin said to him, Don't tell Philip because he'll put it on Facebook. But Calvin doesn't know that I actually have recordings of him singing. I have three, and he, he sings in tune, you know. It was no Roy Orbison, I'm afraid, but uh, I can imagine he kept people entertained and he loved meeting people, Whitley. I mean, when he finally came and told, came out of the woodwork and told his story in full, you know, he got out and about. He lectured at a few um, UFO conferences, and he just loved meeting the people and talking about things. I mean, you know, our conversations weren't necessarily about what happened to him. We talked about, you know, our own lives and our own families and interests and hobbies, and um, of course. Uh, What he did endure, you were right to use that word with Lee, was uh, trauma. He was severely traumatized by by the events that night in October 1973. And that trauma never went away. He eased somewhat when he finally told his story. uh, They were ridiculed, Charlie and Calvin. Uh, I remember speaking to, to one of the witnesses in our book and he said, I saw Charlie and Calvin on the television and the, and the the, people just laughing at him. And he said, there was no way I was going to contact the television and tell them what I'd seen that night. Of
0: course not. That laughter nope. is... Yeah. It's the most devastating thing the, and it's the reason that most people who have had experiences keep quiet about it. Irina, when did you first get uh, involved with this case?
2: Well, I was in a way directly involved. And that was because um, at that date, I, I didn't know it at the time, anything about the abduction or anything else. But my mother, who was a very strong skeptic on everything, called me up, um, called me up um, in Ohio, in Missouri. And she was in Ohio, which is about 600 miles away. And she said, did you hear that noise? And coming from my mother, I thought, this is really weird. And so I teased her a little bit about she should go to the lunatic asylum and get a straitjacket and everything. (laughs) And so, um, then about just a few days later, she called and said that there was just a huge UFO wave going on there, that people were keeping in at night and keeping their kids in the basement and everything. I figured mom was probably one that was keeping in at night, even though she was a skeptic. And it's just seemed really strange, especially from my mother, who, you know, would tell us we're crazy if we even said anything like that. But anyway, uh I forgot about it and several years later I was in Ohio and <clears throat> at Ohio State University and they had a big room full of actual newspapers. You didn't have to look through those little microfilm things. And so I decided to go see if I could find when mom had made that call. And I didn't remember the date or anything, but I remembered. I just guessed it was the middle of October in 73. So I thought I walked into the room and there were a zillion papers. I thought I'll never find this. But I pulled out just about one or two papers and I found a little note that said this strange noise. And I knew that was it. And um, I also discovered around that time that that was when the Pasigula abduction was but I didn't have any interest at all in the abduction. What I was interested in was the sound.
0: Yes. Yeah, tell us about the sound uh, and how extensively heard it was. You've said on this show before, I think that it was possibly the loudest sound ever
2: recorded. It was, I think the second largest in extent um, ever recorded it went from um, Iowa to the East coast and in places that looked like it was so wide, it was from New York into Tennessee. And I, I oh, was, able to, yeah. I mean, that's incredible.
0: And this was the night that this was at the same time, the, the incident happened, wasn't it?
2: It, it may have been exactly the same time. Um, I, They didn't have watches and they didn't know for sure when it was, but I knew for sure when the sound was because I could track it. It was
0: was quite close. We know that.
2: Yeah, it was very close and maybe even the same time. And um, so anyway, I did some more research on it. And the state seismologist of Ohio contacted me and he was interested in it. And he helped me find... um, seismograph recordings and things like that and eventually i found that it had been recorded on two seismographs and that it was um it was just huge and it just covered a huge area and at first the scientists looked at it and said well it's a uh, you know like an airplane and then they had reconsidered because they realized the size and so finally they explained it as a earth grazing meteor well, I found two seismograph recordings, and so I could get the exact pretty close to the exact speed it was going and I could also calculate the speed from Iowa to the coast in different places it went and it was far, far slower than an earth grazing meteor because they have to go at escape velocity and so it wasn't that, but it didn't have the characteristics of a sonic boom whatsoever because a sonic boom like if you're um I think it's one mile for each um, 10,000 feet. So if you're at 50,000 feet, it's 50 miles. Well, this was way over, um, like it was more like 500 miles. And the thing would have to be like um, around 50 miles high, which if it was that high, there wouldn't be a sound at all. But yeah, there,
0: because the atmosphere's too thin.
2: Yeah. But people were running out of their houses and calling in about explosions and fire departments were called and everything else. So it had the characteristics something really loud and low. But instead, it was way up, or I mean, the amount of space it took the uh, sonic, this carpet that it covered was way huge. So it made no sense at all in terms of physics. And they never did explain it, but nobody paid attention to it after that either. But it went over half the country in length.
0: That's incredible. Um, Phil, do you have anything to... Let me ask you both this question. Besides the Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson abduction, were there any other close encounter-related things recorded or reported at that time? Yes. Tell us, us, Phil.
1: Well, I mean... When, when Calvin decided to tell his story, he uh, he was interviewed by a local journalist and um, She called Karen Nelson and she also made a little video, you know like a little eight minute promotional video telling Calvin's story and uh, at some point really, this sent this little video ended up on YouTube and, and I was looking through it and uh, you know I'm reading the comments underneath and there was one comment. <coughs> From, from a person said My mother and father were on the opposite side Of the river that night They too saw the UFO Now this was by a young lady She used a real name <clears throat> So I was managed to find her On social media Explain who I was And said could we speak to your mother And father please She said oh I'll get back to you Which she did And she said yeah they're willing to talk to you And that was Mr and Mrs Blair uh, Jerry and Maria so I got their phone number. I phoned them. I spoke to Maria, and she told me in brief that um, on that night they were on the opposite side of the river on a on a pier. Um, Her husband was going out in a boat. Um, the boat supplied the oil rigs out in the Gulf, but his his boss was late, so they were waiting for the boss. He was trying, he wasn't in a good mood. He was having a sleep in the car. And then she said she saw, she called it an aircraft to begin with. She said she saw this blue thing over the opposite side of the river and it was moving in a very haphazard way, not like an aircraft at all. It was if it was looking for something or if it was lost, it didn't know where it was going. So at this point, her husband and her decided to walk down the pier to put his clothes and belongings on the boat. And there was a huge splash. In the pier next to her, and then the, she said there was this grey man came up out of the water. There were her words, grey man, and you know it went back under the water and never came back up again. So she was,
0: strange.
1: she was terrified. She they run up. It's, of course. this is around nine o'clock ish. So they put Mister Blair's belongings on the boat, and then she looked. Ran back down the pier because she got to go back the same way to get back to the car, and she realized it wasn't nine o'clock anymore, it was around midnight. No so accounting she had the same time, well, yeah, well, yeah, but she, but she didn't really emphasize that, she just told the story.
0: Yeah, we didn't know much about that back in 1970,
1: yeah, and I, and uh, she said, You know, Philip, I, I often wondered if something like what happened to Charlie and Calvary didn't happen to us. And I said, well, why, why would you say that Maria? And, um, she said, I have little glimpses, almost, almost as if I can see something out of my peripheral vision and I can't quite make it out, but there was something else that really bothered her. And it was at that point, and I'll pass this on to Irina. Uh, I put Irina in touch with her cause Irina done the vast majority of the interviews. Uh, with these other witnesses, and, and Irina takes over from there.
0: Well, we're going to take a brief break right now. Uh, we're talking to Philip Mantle and Irina Scott. Beyond reasonable doubt, the Pascagoula alien abduction. You can get it from Flying Disc Press, and uh, it is a very well-drawn, well-done book that they wrote together that gives you the whole story and deeper than the story that you might know. We're going to be talking about things like what they looked like, these creatures, because they're very, very different from most of the abduction stories. We'll be right back. My new book, Them, has now been out since March of 2023. I would like to thank everyone for the wonderful reception. Those who have read it, who have posted thoughtful reviews on Amazon, those who have listened. It's an important book for me. And also, over the months, it has become a very strange book. Because if you listen to the Oversight Committee UAP hearings, you will hear David Grush saying things that almost sound like they were taken right out of the second part of them. And I thought to myself, how did I do that? The answer is I have no idea, but the book is really very prophetic, and I think you should read it if you hadn't done so, and that's what this is all about. Read it, listen to it. It's really worth your time. Jacques Vallée certainly thought so. Mitch Horowitz thought so. Jeff Kripal thought so. Leslie Kane, Diana Pasolka, and all of the others who gave it blurbs thought so. And so do an awful lot of people who have reviewed it. So pick up a copy today. Go to Amazon and get a copy. Go to Audible and get the audio book. Listen to them. Read them. It's a whole new vision of how we should think about the close encounter experience. And this is getting more and more important over time. More and more important. Them. I saw the future when I was writing that book. Didn't know I would, but I did. You can read it now and see for yourself. We're talking to Philip Mantle and Irina Scott. Irina, I want to ask you now, to, I would like to go back to that sound because do you have have you had any thoughts about what could produce a sound like that? I was wondering, could it have been like a penetration from another reality or something? It just Do you have any thoughts about what might have caused it?
2: Well, it didn't seem to fit uh, the way physics of a sonic boom works at all. So I don't think it was a sonic boom, even though all the newspapers said it was. Yeah. And I didn't agree with the... You know after doing some calculations and finding more information such as uh, two seismographs it didn't calculate to be a sonic boom or and it was the scientists then explained it as a earth grazing meteor i mean one that wouldn't land but it couldn't have been that either because it didn't have the right speed and so it was just something that just didn't fit into physics at all and one thing that i kind of wondered about was was the original call from my mother because she was a real skeptic, and I just couldn't imagine she called me and said, did you hear that noise when she was 600 miles away and knew it wouldn't go that far? And I teased her, and she just kept on asking me, did you hear the noise? And so that seems kind of funny, too. And I wondered if there might have been a little bit of psychological something going on, too. But, I mean, that was just my mother. I mean, but then she called and said there was a uh, the Pasigula event was down in the South of uh, the United States and Ohio where my mother was, was up in the Northern part uh, quite a few miles away, but there was just a huge um, wave of UFOs where she was. And I mean, she said that people were staying in at night and things like that. And then another investigator, Len Stringfield mentioned that there was just terror in the air. It was like a war zone and people were keeping their kids in and things. Yeah,
0: sorry, right. we don't have, we haven't had a, a a massive sort of assault like that in a long time. But you know, I actually remember vaguely being aware of. I think uh, someone might have brought it up in social context. Ann and I were living in New York at the time, and someone might have said something about it. In fact, I believe I even remember who did say something about it. And I think he said to me, I I questioned him about this some years ago. And I I said, uh, what, how did I react? Because I was been very curious about since what happened to me in 1985 was so surprising. He said, well, you didn't want to talk about it, Whitley. You didn't want to talk about the UFOs, which was, I find fascinating, fascinating. I don't. I remember thinking they were really stupid, and that it was fairly idiotic the whole thing. Uh, Now, let's get into the what exactly happened on that night. And I'm not sure which of you interviewed Calvin, or, or would like to describe. I will. Okay, that then then you're you're, you're elected. <laughs> Phil, what yeah. happened that night? Yeah,
1: I mean, Calvin uh, didn't live in Pascagoula. He lived out near Laurel, which I believe is almost a couple hundred miles away. And he just got engaged to uh, his childhood sweetheart, Wayneette, and was planning on getting married in November. And uh, he was working long hours. And um, Waynet said, well, you know, can't you get a regular job like a nine-to-five so it was Calvin's father who said, why don't you give Charlie a call, Charles Hickson? He's a foreman in the uh, in the shipyard over by Pascagoula. So they did. Charlie said, yeah, we've got vacancy. So the idea was Calvin would go on um, and board with Charlie uh, Monday to Friday and then go home on a weekend and see how things went. So Thursday, October the 11th, 1973, was the first and only day that calvin parker worked in in the shipyard at walker's shipyard uh, he was a welder and he was almost 19 charlie was 42 he just bought a new car so he's driving home that night he's taking him and charlie back to charlie's uh apartment and it was charlie's idea and he says you want to do some fishing tonight son?" oh yeah that'd be great so they got the tackle from charlie's they bought some bait and off they went. And again, Calvin had to be directed because he didn't know the area. And as they're driving into the fishing spot, right next to Highway 90, Whitley, this is not a place in the, in the middle of nowhere. It's you know. And they they passed a no entry sign, and Calvin remarked on this, and Charlie said, "Don't don't bother with it. You know, I come here often." So they parked the car, started fishing at one spot. Uh, they moved from there because it was you know they were getting bitten by insects. And they found an old a, a, you know, an old pier from an abandoned shipyard. And they were literally, you know, on the end of the pier with their, with their rod and line in the water. And then they had a little zipping noise. And then this blue light came from behind them and it went out across the water. Calvin's first reaction was, oh, boy. And then we shouldn't have ignored that, you know, that no entry sign, we're going to spend the night in jail for trespassing. This is the police so both of them turned around roughly at the same time and of course it wasn't the police there was a, a large oval shaped object descending it stopped uh, a couple of feet above the ground it had two big lights on one end this opening appeared and this light this dazzling light you know came out of this opening it was even more intense and these three very strange creatures emerged Again, they never touched the ground. They literally flew across towards them about 18 inches off the ground. Uh, two got out of Calvin. Sorry, two got out of Charlie, one of Calvin. Both men were terrified, but they then instantly became relaxed. They were paralyzed. They couldn't move. They were taken towards this thing. They went through this opening. Charles was taken to the right, Calvin to the left. Uh, Calvin said they placed him on a a, a transparent table. Uh, this thing came out of the ceiling about the size of a pack of cards and went around him, making clicking noises. This creature, he called them big ugly creatures, was, stood to attention almost away from him. Calvin said he felt this presence. And he heard a little hiss behind him. And then a, another figure appeared. But this time it looked like a woman. Pretty much, you know, like like an ordinary woman. And the only difference was that the middle fingers were somewhat longer. And she pushed Calvin's chin down and put a finger in his mouth and up into his navel cavity, which he didn't like. And um, his lower clothing was removed, his shoes and socks. And he said, they stuck something in my foot and it hurt. And he felt almost as if he was having his blood drained from him and re- and so they, they he was redressed he managed to lose the paralysis for a second and got hold of this female and hit her head against the wall and she kind of pointed to this big ugly creature got hold of calvin he was paralyzed and he was out back on the pier charlie had a similar experience although he didn't see any female creature and the next thing calvin remembered you know is you know, Charlie's got over him and shouting at him. Are you all right? Are you all right? Are you all right, son? And he came to his senses and he turned around and this thing shot off up into the air. Now, at that point, Whitley, the, the, their intention was to tell no one. Calvin said, look, I'm getting married. My, my future father-in-law will never let me marry Wayne Hatt if, if I come out with a story like this. So they... Just, I can well
0: understand. Yeah, well, listen, if, if, could we go back to the a description of the creatures that he first saw, how tall they were, what they were wearing? Yeah, and so Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely.
1: The creatures type? were only around five feet tallish. They had no neck, The head, um, and out of the side of them was two pointed protrusions and one out the front. Their arms were somewhat longer. But they had um, mitten or pincer-like appendages. Their legs never moved. Their legs were kind of sealed together and just had like stumps for feet. And they described the skin, if that's what it was, as like that of an elephant. It was gray in color and wrinkled. There was no odor from these, these creatures. It didn't make any noise. There was no communication from them. And um, if
0: they were biological robots.
1: Well, this is what Charlie and Calvin's conclusion was. It wasn't because they knew this Whitley, it's just the way they moved, the way they reacted. They reacted. It seemed like the the female creature was in charge. And that because Calvin says, while he's laid on the table, this ugly thing is just standing there, not moving, not making a sound, not doing anything. Uh, and it was the, the female that that um Pointed towards it, and it sprang to life again. And um, you know, we've we've looked through the literature and books, uh, and we can't find anything like this description anywhere in the world. What is interesting, Whitley, just um, in August, a young lady by the name of Chelsea uh, Nel- Norton Prince, who runs the Ocean Springs Historical Society, was donated two boxes of paperwork, letters and documents that used to belong to Charles Hickson. You know, they've been donated to the society. And in this box, uh, they arrived after the book was published, is a a handwritten um, bullet point, it goes from one to 20, written by Mr. Hickson himself, which describes these creatures one bit at a time and you know the nose the pointy thing was so so many inches long the chest was so many inches wide and so on we do it in bullet points probably now on the computer but this was handwritten by charlie and there's also a little sketch uh of the ufo as well now these never seen the light of day and and we will make them available so we get a little bit more of an insight um they had difficulties at times describing the size of the object because of the intensity of the light. They had to, you know, shield their eyes. Calvin likened it to that of a welder's arc when somebody's welding, the, 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 the yeah, luminosity man. of it. God. So that's why we get a couple of interpretations of what of the estimates of the size. It was just the light was blinding. And um, so these creatures are... are Totally unique to the encounter of Charlie and Calvin. We can't find a description like them anywhere else.
0: But there were other events. Uh, like, uh, am I right that uh, Irina that the uh, for, uh, for 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 Gioni case in Italy? What What happened in that case? Are you familiar with that case, Alberto Forgiuni or or Phil? Are you? No. Irina, does it ring a bell with you? There was
2: a lot of things happening all over the world then at that time.
0: Well, tell us about some of them, because I'm not sure which you... I'm looking in the book and uh, uh, the...
2: Well, my other book, um, Beyond Pascagoula, goes into a whole lot of newspaper articles um, at what happened at that time. And there were just a lot of sightings, like in Ohio at the same time as the boom, there were also some sightings, even by policemen and things. And during that time of like the middle of October, and even on that date, there were just tons of sightings. And like in Columbus, Ohio, there were like 150 reports in one night of UFOs, which might be the most any place anywhere. And so this, wave was not just in Pasigula it was just a huge wave and several people said it was the largest UFO wave ever so Pasigula was a part of this and things were happening all over
1: yeah I mean there was a guy called Walter N. Webb Whitley he Yeah, yeah, he did a, like a self-published um, periodical and he called it 1973 the year of the humanoids uh, and, and it was a wave. And it would seem that whatever happened at Pasgoula, that was like the epicentre of it. That was the peak. And this went right across the United States. And um, I'll give you an example. We've been in contact with the police dispatcher who was on duty that night. He took the call from Charlie. And uh, he said he he alone took over 50 calls of UFO reports that night. And when he went back to the police station after his his shift had finished were people there reporting it and we have to remember when when Charlie and Calvin you know ended up at, sh- at the sheriff's department they were interrogated there uh, by sh- uh, sheriff Fred diamond and um, and his deputies and it was only when we were putting the finishing touches to the book that we we also found out that the sheriff had his own sighting 2 days later and we found that in a in a newspaper article and uh, in an interview that the sheriff did at the time he said you know in the in the following days uh they had thousands of phone calls across the across the states he didn't mean just in pascagoula uh and he said there were thousands of them and um so you know whilst whilst the what happened that night in pascagoula was unique it wasn't alone that year and uh again for whatever i know there are exceptions but for whatever Reason When you look back in UFO history, the 1970s on block which seemed to be the decade of real, what Dr. Hynek called high strangeness cases. Why that is, I don't know. And that's not just in the United States as well. I know here from my own research in the, in the UK that na- the 1970s, we had some of the most bizarre reported encounters, you know, at, at, of any other time. Um and it's make of it what you will, but um it was certainly a year. I mean, I've got I've got another book coming out by Kevin Mandel on the first of October, and it is called 1973, the year of UFO sightings, landings and abductions. So I think the title, you know, says it all really.
0: Yes. uh i'm having a, a small computer problem on my end now uh i have lost you there you there you go there you are all right uh, i um i'm sorry folks i it's okay I, I, I lost the screen <laughs> i couldn't see him I, I, but that's not unusual uh Well, you know, we need to take another break, actually. Uh, I'm a little late on the break, so we'll take a break now, and we'll be right back. UnknownCountry.com. It's huge. It's much more than just a Whitley-Strieber book site. It contains thousands of hours of interviews, meditations, podcasts of all kinds My original hypnosis tapes are there. You can actually hear the moment that I discovered that I at least was not alone in this universe in the office of Dr. Donald Klein so many years ago. Whitley Strieber audiobooks, Communion, Transformation, The Secret School, Breakthrough, Majestic, And so much more powerful meditations, but more even than all that, it is a community of people who are either looking to gain contact or actually in contact now. There is no community like it in the world. It is absolutely unique. Contact really is happening here. That's what these shows are all about. That's what my life and this website are about. It's real. And it can be of enormous benefit to us individually and to mankind as long as we take our part and do it our way. This is what being a member of Unknown Country is about so go to unknowncountry.com and subscribe today join us and join very frankly the future we're talking to Philip Mantle and dr. Irina Scott uh, beyond reasonable doubt and beyond Pascagoula which we will get to in just a few minutes uh, uh, an attempt to to dimensionalize this huge series of events that took place in 1973 in the U.S. and 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 around the world uh, and is always reported as only in the context of single events, as if that was all that happened. But it's not the case. As we've discovered, there was a huge sound and there were people literally hiding in their houses in parts of the U.S. out of fear of the UFOs that were around and the Pascagoula incident happened and other incidents. Um, I think that where I would like to go now, Irina, is too beyond Pascagoula and if you could tell us a little bit about what uh, you what you found and and oh i before we go there i i wanted just to say that this period is also by far the period of time is most often referred to in the letters that we got after the publication of communion the early 1970s were when most of these abduction cases seemed to have occurred. Okay. Well,
1: I, re- I I just want to interrupt there, Willie, because sure, when, go these, right ahead. when these two boxes of letters turned up, uh, it was a lady who was a member of the society. Her, her parents had bought Charlie Hickson's house when he passed away, and they were left in it, <clears throat> and she knew of uh, Chelsea's interest in the subject, so she said she donated them. Chelsea knew of my involvement and got in touch with me. But the one thing it re- it reminded me of instantly was yourself and all the letters that you got from people around the world. And um Charlie has got the saying that th- this lady had a lot more of these letters, but she gave her other boxes away to someone and she can't remember whom. But while I'm I have them all now digitized and I'm I'm trying to go through them, I kept thinking back to yourself and and the letters you got from around the world because whilst a lot of these letters are saying to to charlie hickson you know i want to buy your book or whatever they're also asking him for more information and others reporting what what they had seen as well you know so because i know you were Inundated with, with correspondence.
0: Uh, oh yeah, we were absolutely. We were so it, thousands it, it, of letters.
1: It wasn't that many, but it certainly reminded me. Thankfully, it wasn't that many. I don't know if I could ever got through them, but uh, it, it reminded me instantly of you. Yeah, well, it it was a
0: very active time, and you you have to wonder what it was about, and uh, that is something that we never we don't do enough of in our field we are trying to organize cases, find cases, and describe cases, but we're, the layer below that is the layer of what they were about. Who was this woman that, uh, that, that Charlie Hickson saw? Uh, who was the, were these other figures living beings, or what were they? and how many other people around the world had similar experiences. Uh, Irina, are you ready to go with, uh, t- talk a little bit about Beyond uh, Pascagoula?
2: Yes, um, Leonard Stringfield wrote a book, um, I can't remember the name of it right now, wrote a whole book about it, about all the strange things that were happening in this area around Ohio. So it wasn't just um, uh, Pascagoula, Uh, And there were some unusual abductions, too. For example, we thought it was odd that that we had the abduction of Calvin and Charlie, but also at the same time, the same place, there might have been another abduction. But there was an abduction in Utah, not the same date, but that same year, where this family, um, the mother... Uh, woke up and there was some kind of commotion in the house or something and one of the kids said oh That was a spaceman and she didn't pay attention to it for quite a while but for some reason she did later and Then they investigated in more detail and hypnotized him and things and they talked about this abduction where they had people and the neighbors lined up along the street going <laughs> for an abduction and um, the kids some of the kids remembered it consciously but
0: uh, that's interesting that, uh, that, that they remember it consciously, because that's f- fairly rare. I mean, even in my case, while I, rem- I knew something very strange and violent had happened to me. It took quite a while for the memories to gel. Uh, Calvin. The Hick. The Pascagoul incident, though they they never had a period of missing time or anything, or did they?
1: No, no, no. I mean, what they, what whilst they were driving home, uh, at that point they were, still so we weren't going to tell anybody. But Charlie had a change of heart. He said, so "We have got to tell somebody, Calvin. What if these things come back and do this to somebody else? What if this is the beginning of an invasion?" You know, bearing in mind Charlie had been in the military. So Calvin agreed on, on 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 one point, and he said, okay, uh, I'll say I saw everything until the creatures came out, but that's it. You know, he'll say, I, I passed out. I don't remember anything out. And Charlie agreed to that. He wanted to protect his young friend because Calvin was crawling up the walls. Um, of course. Obviously. And, uh, of course, they, they ended up at the sheriff's office. They told them everything. The following day, they were at Keesler Air Force Base, and, uh, And again, they were interviewed. We have a full transcript of that interview in the book. They had a stenographer available and there's no redactions. There's all the, you know, uh, officers' names and everything. So, you know, Calvin has had hypnosis uh, down the years. And I asked him about it. I said, was it of any use to you? And he says, not really, Philip. I remembered it all anyway. You know, he just went along with it. And, um. So they, they remembered it all. I mean, Alan Hynek was on, on site with Dr. James Harder within a couple of days. Again, recounted everything to them in full. So there was no period of missing time a, at all.
0: Uh, by the way, the it's I believe the Len Stringfield book is called Situation Red.
2: Yeah, that's it. I'm sorry.
0: No, that's okay. I, I know that the listeners will... We'll want that information if we have it. And yeah, it's called Situation Red. And what he talks about is this, all this this massive event. And Irina, you've studied it more extensively. I mean, there's more known now in Beyond Pascagoula. So can you tell us, give us some, some kind of idea of the dimensions of
2: this event? It's, well... Lynn Stringfield was from Cincinnati, Ohio, and I've met him and talked to him. Um, actually, once when I met him, uh, I I was just beginning in UFOs, and he'd made me walk outside and talked about things and said that um, he thought his house was bugged. And I didn't understand anything then or else I would have made notes about it and remembered what he said when he was talking outside. But um, he was – it was – in his book, one of the first things that that, men- that was mentioned was um, cattle mutilations. And um, some woman said that, called in and said that a UFO had landed. And I think she said killed her cow or something. I don't remember exactly right now. But there were just an unusual number of things like that. And another thing that happened pretty close to here was the coin helicopter event and this was where these four people were in a helicopter going uh, up to, I think it was Mansfield, Ohio. And the freeway I-71 goes right to our farm. And usually back then, they, without GPS, the helicopters just followed the road. So it might've been past my place right before it happened. But they said um, they the people in the helicopter saw this red light way off in the distance and thought it was coming closer. Well, um, they they told the pilot and he said, Oh, it's just the F, you know, 16 or whatever it was. And then he realized it wasn't. And it got quite close. And finally it was right over him and they got a look at it. And the inside of the, Um, helicopter turned green and some of their dials were just going around like crazy. And um, they weren't aware of it. Apparently the pilot dove to avoid a collision, but somehow when the green light was on the helicopter rose like 3000 feet or something. And that was when the thing was above it. And they got a look at it. Um, I think it had windows and the green light was in the car um, and they thought it was shining a green light on him. And um, there was a light, another light on the helicopter. I mean, on the object. And then it went on by, but it had a, a whole lot of effects on him right then. And then it flew on by, but then uh, Jenny Zeidman who lived in Columbus did a whole real good investigation of it. And, Also, there were ground witnesses that saw the whole thing also, that saw the helicopter and the um, object. And the object, had um, the green light was enough that it lit the ground up around these ground witnesses too. So it was a really good uh, uh, UFO event. And I think that just happened just about a week or so after the Pascagoula thing.
0: The, the, uh, well, we got to take our final break now. So we're going to do that. We'll take our final break and we'll be right back. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full, in audio format, and believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories, into it, and I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion. Listen to it. Read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. Okay, we're back. Uh, we're talking to Philip Mantle and Irina mccammon Scott about the Pascagoula incident and beyond, beyond the Pasc beyond reasonable doubt, the Pascagoula abduction, a very fascinating and extensive book they have written together, and Irina has gone even deeper with Beyond Pascagoula. And we're talking basically about the year nineteen seventy-three, and and I'm very. I've wondered about this for years. And Len doesn't, if I remember his book correctly, doesn't get into it too deeply. But, but I've often thought to myself, "Uh, yeah, situation red. That's there. It is. Uh, I can see you've studied it carefully with all the markers in it." Anyway, um, that. Yeah. Uh, what was going on in the wider world at the time? I don't think there was anything particularly extraordinary or special about that period or was there, Irina?
2: Oh, there was, it was very extraordinary. And it was amazing that the um, UFOs were making the news then, because um, there was a DEFCON 3 uh Alert, nuclear alert for an atomic war that might happen, and I think that there were only two of those. One was the Bay of Pigs, and this time, and that was because of a war. Um, uh, I forget the name of the war um, in the Middle East, where the um, the, the Arab-Israeli
0: Arab war. Really war.
2: Yeah, yeah. and oh, that's
0: um, right. So there was huge. You know, I I want to interject something here. Not only me, but many abductees have had a message that messages about the danger of changes in the environment, which we are now seeing all around us, and the dangers of nuclear war. And I'm wondering if this was, and there's some, I'm not one of them, but there are some abductees who say they've been told, that there will be an intervention if a nuclear war takes place or there's about to be a nuclear war. And we were very close, you're right, in 1963. Was this an intervention, do you suppose, or the beginnings of war?
1: I don't know about intervention, but like I said, when we were explaining him, you know, Calvin's character, if he didn't want to tell you something Whitley, he wouldn't, so there was no point, you know, trying to get it out of him. So there are a couple of points about his encounter that he didn't like talking about in particular, and one of what she said was a curse. And he said that this female creature showed him things from Earth's past, present, and future. And in the future, all of humanity is going to be at war, that no nation will escape it, and it, it will even be family against family. And he said he was shown pictures of, you know, the skin literally melting off of people. And it perturbed him enormously. It really, really did. He talked about a virus as well. In modern times, which some people have interpreted as the COVID. Calvin never said that. He just said a, a virus. And um, he did not like discussing it because of the visions, if that's what you want to call them he had been given and he literally called them a curse and um make of it what you will you know i can only report what what it, of what he told me but it's uh, you know like i said he, he he was a very caring man and this p- perturbed him no end you know what if these things are real that this is going to happen you know and he it was powerless to do anything about it of course
0: Yeah, exactly. And we, you know, so many, I'm not alone. I mean, so many close encounter witnesses get these dire warnings. I don't think anyone ever gets like, Hey, it's going to be great. That that doesn't happen. Like in my case, one of the first things that happened to me in in 1985, even before the communion experience was a, a terrifying vision of the world on fire. And it is now on fire. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really scary stuff. Yeah. Um, so we have a a truly bizarre situation, and it, 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 and yet at the same time, was there any, Irina in the cases that you've studied from the period? Can you give us a flavor of the a sense of the texture of them? Or in other words were people feeling menaced or how were they feeling when they had these encounters in those days? Did they feel like it was somebody who was warning us or threatening or just studying us? Or could you, can you tell?
2: Well, I just, (laughs) my only contact with, my actual contact was my mother who was a total skeptic. And um, she was saying, you know, people were, well, she called me about the noise And that just seemed way odd for her because she would know I couldn't hear a noise 600 miles away, but she still sort of kept saying that. And I thought, you know, at the time I thought, you know, um, she'd always said that if she was going crazy, we should tell her ahead of time. So she'd know she was going to have dementia or something. And I kidded her about it, but I still kind of wondered that that was a strange thing. And I kind of wondered if maybe that was an example of maybe other people having things because as I think, Leonard Stringfield in his um, book described something like my mother described when she called later that people were really scared. And in um, Wheeling, West Virginia, there were so many sightings that they almost had some kind of a mass hysteria outbreak of people running for help or something. And I think there were a lot of really scared people Especially, there were ones like that happened here, like um, in Pasigula. Maybe there were abductions too, but nobody reported them. But like this one man, he was working for the government, and I think he worked in an airport. He said he saw this blue thing that was almost transparent land. And it sounded a lot like the UFO that Calvin um, described. And then it took off. and I mean, he was a real educated type person, and that was in the newspapers quite a bit. And there was just a lot of um, terror going on, just like it was a war. And also, at that time, um, there was also an impeachment going on of the president, which, besides the war, there was this too.
0: It was pretty active. I remember, of course, I remember that vividly because we watched the whole thing. We were fascinated. By that, that. the rest of it is very vague in my memory. Very
2: vague. Well, like Nixon, (laughs) uh, you know, according to Drunks, he, he was sort of out of his mind a little bit and he was running around the White House. And, you know, he had he could punch the nuclear trigger at any time if he happened to be off his rocker or something. And he was very disturbed. And that was, I think, they. (laughs) <laughs> took some action in that and had several layers of things that protection if, you know, the president pushes the nuclear button but um, there was just a lot of other things going on at that same time and it's sort of odd because now it's 50 years later and we're having impeachments and the government's actually taking UFOs seriously and things almost like there was a 50-year law and it started up again or something.
0: I wonder if the fact that the government's taking this seriously will cause any kind of a reaction, on the part of whoever's here, will they come closer to us now? Do you think, Philip? Why don't you give me your ideas? You know, for
1: I, I, I don't know, Willie. Really, what regarding the government? I mean, we've we've all been following it, and, and of course there was NASA's presentation today, and I think you'll notice, Willie, really, that the one big thing that's missing out of all of these discussions is the close encounters you know they keep reiterating You know we want to hear from you know civil and military pilots and and that's about it uh, which I, I i find bizarre now what would they do for example if one of these pilots reported a close encounter would they ignore him or her i, I don't know it seems as if they're trying to write this aspect of the phenomena you know, out of the out, out of the books. And, and well, and again, just to give you an example, Whitley, in these documents that recently were handed to us, there's a letter in there to Charles Hickson by a NASA physicist, his name, you know, I mean, there's nothing, you know, it's, it's a letter. And he said, in 1973, he approached NASA, and asked them to investigate the Pascagoula case and they declined. And it looks pretty much after listening to their presentation today, that they do the same again. It's as if they're trying to edit this aspect of the of the UFO phenomena out of it. And I, I find it alarming and bizarre. I really do. Um that's no way to study the phenomena by ignoring a large part of it just because you don't like it. Uh, it's, it's, it's madness.
0: Well, you know, uh, years ago uh, there was a book uh, published uh, called "Unknown Flying Objects" uh, by. Um, and now I'm challenged. Let me let me see. Oh yeah, uh, okay. Unknown flying objects. It was by Paul R. Hill, and he was the he was one of the founding members of NASA, and very prominent in NASA. He received all kinds of honors and he had a number of extraordinary ufo experiences back in the 1950s and he collected ufo information for nasa and he wrote his book about it uh, unknown flying objects and expected to publish the book but nasa wouldn't let him publish the book while he was employed eventually he retired And he expected to publish the book again. According to what I have learned, he was threatened with having his pension stopped if he published this book. And it was then, it was found by his daughter in his personal affairs, personal effects, after he died, and she got it published. And it is an amazing book by a man who, NASA could not deny was an absolute aerospace master, not just an expert, but an absolute master. And they buried it and they ignored it completely. And, you know, there's a reason NASA's called never a straight answer. (laughs) Because, you know, NASA's done a lot of good in the world when it comes to this subject, they have failed. And and as far as the rest of the government is concerned, uh, I, you know, I know a lot of people in the government and uh, I'm like the one that's always singled out to be very careful with. You don't wanna talk to Whitley too much. You don't wanna even be around him because I think they suspect my implant broadcasts them to the visitors as if the visitors couldn't find out what they were doing without my implants. So stupid, so childish. But in any case, uh, I sent my book to the entire uh, new book, them the entire Senate intelligence committee. And this is a book that's making a big stir. It's a, it's, it's quite, there's the scholarly world is reading it and writing papers about it right now. It's a serious book. Not one senator contacted me. I had uh, Stephen Schiff, who's running for the Senate, and who supposedly had an interest in this subject. I have mutual friends who know him very well, and they personally gave it to him. Not a word. Not a word. And the reason is, they're scared of the abduction phenomenon for, I think, a very simple reason. It is... It happened. It happened to millions of people. They either let it happen or couldn't do anything about it. I don't know which. There's always these rumors that there was some kind of a treaty. And maybe that's true. And that would be something they absolutely would never want the public to know. That they gave us up. I don't know. I don't know if that's true because... I know enough about these these entities to know that if they're going to come get you, they're going to come get you, and I don't think they give a damn about what our government can't, wants or doesn't want, and they can't. Our government absolutely cannot stop it.
1: Well, I was watching today's, you know, presentation by the various NASA officials, and then there was a Q&A at the end, and I was just hoping somebody would ask him that question, Whitley, you know, it's all right, you know, relying on civilian and military pilots. But what about the the encounter cases? Nobody's mentioned them. Would you take one of them, surely? Because they're on about openness and you know, and a scientific study. And we will examine this. We'll we need better data. Is one of the things they said, you know. And then they said we we want people to use their mobile phones more. And I, I, I'm thinking, you know, it's it's. It's like the 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 um, the JFK movie, when you know, Jim Garrison reads the the uh, the report on it, and he's saying, "Ask the question," you know, "Ask the question." He's reading the Warren report, and he's saying, "Ask the question," you know, as if he's there. And I'm thinking today, you know, where people come up to the microphone or they're on the telephone, ask the question, uh, and nobody did so. Uh, I sent an email to NASA today, and I asked a question. Now, whether it will get forwarded on or not, I don't know. But I, I asked the question, nonetheless. I had to do it. I couldn't. I couldn't resist. And, yeah, and it would be not. interesting. It'd be interesting to see how things develop. It really will. But you know, well, the I mean, UFO phenomenon is just not pilots' reports. There's more to it than that. It's
0: much more to it. Yes. You, you those of you listening on the free side, are uh, free section of the podcast has ended and we're going to go on beyond a reasonable doubt with philip Mantle and beyond pascagoula with irene mccammon scott uh talking going in, into depth about this and when we go on i'm going to be starting out at talking a little bit about something that happened early on in my encounter experience, that proves that the government does know about them and does take them very seriously. So free Dreamlanders, as always, thank you so much for being with us. I greatly appreciate your presence and your interest, and as always, urge you to subscribe. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.